Hey there, it's Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. You're more powerful than you think. That's the emphatic message and title of Eric Liu's new book. By asking readers to picture a ripe red tomato, the expert in the power of civic engagement uses an effort by tomato pickers in Florida to illustrate that point. You gotta hear him explain why Occupy Wall Street is like a nurse log, why not voting is voting, and why Donald Trump is... He is responsible for the greatest surge in civic participation in half a century. You can hear it all right now. Eric Lou, thanks very much for being on the podcast this morning. It's great to be with you. So you start out your new book literally with this line, picture a ripe red tomato. Why is that tomato the foundation of your book? That tomato, which we take for granted any time we're in our kitchen or at a fast food store or supermarket, is emblematic of the potential of citizen power. I tell the story about the tomato pickers of Immokalee, Florida, uh, which is a part of the country where a giant proportion of our national tomato crop is grown. And for decades, those tomatoes were picked by the hands of migrant workers who were often undocumented and basically subjected to a form of what you would think of as indentured servitude. Or slavery, I think yeah, really. you call it. Yeah, just to hop in a skip away from slavery. And for decades, these workers labored in obscurity and they were ground down by the forces that were the growers and the buyers. And, uh, and at a certain point in the 1990s, some of these pickers decided, you know what, we should organize. And they met up in a church at night and they started thinking about what could they do to actually change their conditions. And from there, this cascade, this snowball effect began where at first they began to strike, they got better wages, then they actually struck for better working conditions for you know, simple things like heat shelters uh, in the middle of the hot day. Um, and from there, they didn't just change their own situation, get their own wages uh, raised, they began to look at the bigger picture and the ways in which, you know, the growers who are squeezing us aren't really the problem, it's the buyers, it's the supermarkets, it's the fast food chains. And so they started mobilizing the media and other activists to apply pressure on those buyers. And they've actually shamed many of those big buyers into a code of conduct that they wouldn't buy from growers that were essentially practicing slavery, right? Uh, and over the course of many years then, this group of humble immigrant tomato pickers was able to fundamentally change the game of a giant proportion of our economy. They didn't have connections. They didn't have clout. Many of them weren't literate in English, much less literate in power and power politics, and they could do it. And I open the book with that story because if they could do it, there's really no good reason why you or I can't do it, why you or I can't find more capacity to exercise more of our power in more arenas in civic life. You know, the, the, as you're telling that story, and as I was reading, the, the number one question that jumped into my head was, where did they find the courage to do this? Because as you said, many of them didn't speak the language. They, uh, many of them probably were not here, were not in the, in the United States legally. And yet they, when you are with, you have those conditions mm. and you're fighting power, power doesn't give up power easily. How, where do they find the courage to do this? You know, you think back to any period in American history where big changes happened and you know, we now look back on the civil rights era and we know how it ends. So we just see it as this narrative straight line of progress, right? 1953, 1954, you had to have some guts to start boycotting the bus system in Montgomery. You had to have some guts uh, to start challenging the Jim Crow power structure in some of these small towns in the South, right? It was not at all clear that the outcome that you were going to be setting in motion was going to be a positive for right. one for you, right? 
And I think what leads people to find that courage is, number one, just being pushed down to the bottom so far that they can't take it anymore. But number two, it is the company of others. It is not being alone. It is being reminded that you are not only in fellowship, but you are in a community of purpose, right? Uh, And at every turn, in every major shift in American politics, people have realized we're not isolated, atomized individuals the way that American mythology teaches us. We're actually part of a web of relationship and obligation and purpose, and our purpose is to change our fates. And and the word that pops into that comes to mind is selflessness. That's right. It, which you know, I don't know. It just seems to be in woeful short supply these days. That that aura of selflessness. Or am I wrong in that? Well, you know, I might not even call it selflessness. I would call it a sense of mutual self-interest. We're all better off when we're all better off, right? It's not asking people to be saints and altruists. It's saying to people, look, and this is, again, not just the, the Immokalee tomato pickers or people in the Jim Crow South in the 40s and 50s. I'm talking about today, the people who were so frustrated with our political system that they voted either for Sanders or for Trump or didn't vote at all, right? People who wanted to knock the table over instead of playing the same old game, right? For these folks, I think the opportunity right now is actually to see the ways in which their fates are entwined and see that, look, if we band together, we can change the frame of the possible. We can change the story. We can change the game. And we can change the equation uh, of power and politics in this country. And that's that we live in an age right now, Jonathan, of bottom up citizen power across the board. Right. I mean, it's not just on the left. It's the Tea Party. It's Occupy. It's $15 now. It's Black Lives Matter. And people across the board are finding their voice and surging against top-down, monopolistic, uh, concentrated power. See, you anticipated the next thing I was going to say because you write in the book, this is a moment of citizen power, and you say that Occupy Wall Street begat 15 15 an hour, begat something else, which begat something else. And you also say for anyone who thinks that this is a a left-leaning book, you talk about how the Tea Party did the same thing, that this citizen power is coming from both sides, from the left and the right. It is, absolutely. I mean, I think you can't have four decades of concentration of wealth, rigging of the political game to benefit the already privileged, uh, and concentration of voice uh, without there being a major system-wide reaction. And we are seeing that reaction coming from left, right, and center right now. And I think one of the things that is, of course, do I differ uh, from my friends in the Tea Party who Uh, on policy positions, you bet. But I'm not saying that in that classic D.C. senatorial way, my friends in the Tea Party, when in fact I just want to stab them in the guts, right? because the moment (laughs) you say my friends, you know the brickbats coming. Yeah, no, I actually have friends in the Tea Party, right? I have friends like Matt Kibbe, who was a founder of Freedom Mm -hmm. Works, Mark Meckler, who was the co-founder of the Tea Party Patriots, right? We will disagree like cats and dogs on something like the Affordable Care Act or bank regulation. But if uh, my view is, if you're interested right now in equipping more people with more skills and more wherewithal in bottom-up citizen power, let's play. Let's talk. Because this is an age right now where, um, you know, it's fundamentally important that people get literate in that stuff. And then we can argue out policy choices and policy preferences. You know, there's something else that's a part of this that I was actually surprised you went there, but very happy you went there. And you do it very, you do it early on in the book. Um, You write uh, that this whole moment um, it's it's made all the more turbulent by another great shift underway, the delinking of whiteness and Americanness. 
the imminent arrival of an America that is majority of color, even as the power structure has remained predominantly white, and even as undereducated white faces declining, whites face declining opportunities and life expectancies, has amplified the anxiety and expectation and volatility already in the air. It has made populists out of racists and vice versa. It has emboldened social justice, advoc- social justice advocates and white supremacists alike to press their claims more impatiently. That's, I mean, that is a very volatile drop in this this bucket that you're talking about. Um, am I making too big a deal of this? It, it isn't. Isn't this going to be something that is actually more prominent than even just the paragraph that you gave it? Well, I, I think uh, you're you're not doing too much to bring it up, and I there's a reason why I brought it up pretty early in the book. I think this is we're kidding ourselves if we think that the shifts underway and the turbulence underway in American politics is just about class or just about economic inequality. We're in this incredible period where. Whiteness and Americanness are splitting apart, and that is freaking a lot of people out, yeah. right? Uh, and and so you know, at the same time, it's you know, even though we can see now, it's within sight that year twenty forty, when this becomes statistically a majority people of color country, in almost every structure of power in the country, you can basically create your variations on the hashtag Oscar so white, right? Oscar so white, journalism so white, Wall Street so white, uh, media so white, right? Um, politics so white, Hill staffers so white, right? The, the, the power structure of this country um, is going to lag behind these democratic shifts, and that's only going to add uh, to the turbulence. But to me, you know, you, you can't hide from that. You have to face it squarely. And when you face it squarely, you realize the rise of Breitbart and the rise of Black Lives Matter are arising from the same thing, right? These kinds of turbulent shifts and this anxiety and this need uh, among status-anxious whites to claim to hold on to a sense of uh, relative position uh, and the yearning and the desire, particularly of young African-Americans, to say, you know what, it's time to actually redeem these promises that this country keeps on making to us, and we're not going to do it politely anymore. We're going to do it in your face. And I think both of these are are unavoidable realities in our time. Mm -hmm. You also write, the old deal is dead. There is no new deal yet. So what does that new deal even look like to you? You know, one thing that it looks like, there are two things about the, quote, new New Deal that's coming. Uh, number one, it's going to scramble party lines. Um, I think uh, I mentioned Matt Kibbe, my friend from, mm-hmm. you know, who now runs Free the People, which is kind of a millennially targeted libertarian organization. And he talks a lot about the a la carte nature of the political preferences of young people today. Right? They're tired of choosing from column A or column B. They're mixing and matching preferences, policy positions, candidates, and so forth. I think we're going to see more of that. The other big shift that I think is going to define this new New Deal, and I'm sorry to say this as we sit here in the nation's capital, but it's going to be less about Washington, D.C. It's going to be more and more about what I call networked localism, innovation and change happening at local levels in cities and states and counties, and then those innovators linking up with each other, right? I I live in Seattle, and I had a very active hand uh, in our city being the first in the country uh, to uh, enact a $15 minimum wage, right? Uh, we didn't do that in isolation. We did that in collaboration with other activists and other folks in other cities around the country who are laying the same kind of groundwork. And that's why you see this contagion going on across the land of cities raising the minimum wage. 
The same is happening on guns. The same has been happening, of course, on it happened on marriage equality. It's how we've come to where we are, right? I think we're going to see more and more of that stuff happening in a bottom-up networked way rather than emanating from the capital and radiating out to the people. And, and as you say that, two, two things come to mind. Listening to, to what you just said then, the Women's March, the day after the inauguration, should not have taken anyone by surprise. That is like the ultimate, one of the ultimate examples of what you call network localism. And the second example that came to mind um, are the town halls yes. that have been happening around the country uh, uh, centered around Trump care yes. and trying to trying to defeat that and the success of that. Those are two examples, um, I think, of what you're talking about, of not Washington down, but from the citizenry up. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, let, let's take each of those in turn. The Women's March uh, and the subsequent wave of other marches, right? I mean, we, we've just had the tax marches, the science marches will be coming up. All of these are evidence of this bottom-up networking. But the other thing that they're evidence of is there's no single person in charge. Right. I defy you to tell me who ran the Women's March or who ran uh, the tax marches, right? I mean, the, these are networked in a beautiful way. And even as the Trump presidency and Trump the man himself uh, are so much about sucking attention toward this single point of focus, he alone, right, is going to do X or Y, uh, the way to counter Trump is not to try to create a giant single point of opposition. It is exactly this kind of decentralized swarm uh, of resistance and pushback that's actually going to contain him. The, 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 the thing beyond the uh, women's marches, though, I think the, the reality of our time right now uh, is that these kinds of networked uh, activities uh, are going to be changing not only how people push against the Trump administration, but how people are relearning how to exercise their citizen muscles, right? Mm. I actually give Donald Trump a little credit. He is responsible for the greatest surge in civic participation in half a century, right? <laughs> <laughs> he didn't mean for it to happen, but, you know. Thanks, Donald Yeah, Trump. thanks, Donald. You know, but here we are, right? And people have awakened and they've realized millions of people for the first time or for the first time in a really long time are getting off the sidelines and stepping onto the field. And, yeah. Their muscles are now a little bit sore and they realize, wow, I can't keep up the pace of a march a week or, you know, writing Mm -hmm. 50 emails a week. And they're going to learn to pace themselves. But they're also learning a whole bunch of other things that we have forgotten as a people. You know, one of my big one of my big fears and concerns is that this this enthusiasm, this energy that we have seen since the election it's not going to sustain. It can't be sustained. This level of energy, or is it that President Trump will be so polarizing and galvanizing that we don't have to worry about the enthusiasm? That we don't have to worry about people's interests and activism flagging, um, you know, before the midterm elections happen, when when citizen power actually gets to really exercise itself at the ballot box. I don't think we have to worry. I think, I mean, and that's partly because I'm, I'm sure Donald Trump will continue to provoke in ways that, uh, that <laughs> galvanizes his opposition. But even, you know, you, you, you mentioned these uh, congressional town halls, right? Let's take that. Indivisible, uh, which was a guide, a uh, 26-page document created by a group of ex-congressional staffers. They threw it up as a Google Doc online, right? And it goes completely viral on social media, which, number one, surprised them. But then, number two, it leads to 6,000 self-organized local chapters. Hmm. They never could have predicted this, that people would take ownership using that document as their initial excuse for convening. Uh, But then, 
you know, g- convening for reasons other than just the document, right? So, yeah, they use that to now learn how to apply pressure on Tom Cotton at an Arkansas town hall or whatever it might be. Uh, but beyond that now, they're thinking, okay, now that we've met, now that we've formed a club, now that we know each other, now that we've built relationships, what else can we do, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this pivot is beginning to happen where people are moving beyond simple resistance to thinking about what affirmative agendas can we, again, in the company of others with a sense of shared purpose, actually achieve. Um, And I think that that energy is going to sustain itself on a whole wave of different kinds of reform. It might be criminal justice reform. It might be tax reform. It might be education reform. But, you know, you heard Republicans critic like they they saw the indivisible document and they immediately slammed it as, aha, here is this this cabal, this conspiracy to un-American even, you know, organizing people to to crash the system. <laughs> I, I mean, it, I, it's I, as un-American as Tom Paine. It's as un-American <laughs> as the pamphleteering of the colonial era. Right. It is as un-American uh, as the abolitionist newspapers in the 1840s and 1850s. In other words, it is completely American to be writing down playbooks for how you as citizens can organize with each other and apply pressure on resistant, unresponsive uh, office holders, right? And I think that is the, that is the great American story. And I think the, you know, the, the irony is the folks who created Indivisible, though they may be getting heat from the right, they pay full homage to the Tea Party. They say, look, half the plays in this playbook we copied from what the Tea Party did in 2010. They did it really well. They applied pressure in town meetings. They managed to prove then, and I think Indivisible is proving again today, that though we are a country that operates by nominally by majority rule, majority rule is always shaped by minority will. It only takes an activated supercharged minority to change the frame of the possible. At no time in 2010 were Tea Partiers a majority of national Republicans, much less a majority of the people of the United States, and yet they completely shifted our politics, some might say, off the rails, right? Um, but whether, whatever you like about or don't like about their policies, they won that game, right? Uh, right now, Indivisible may or may not constitute uh, a majority of the people, much less even a majority of Democrats or progressives, uh, but they are activated, they are organized, and as I say in my book, organizing is magic, Organizing helps you create power out of thin air. And it reminds us that though things seem static oftentimes, especially in in national politics, power is infinite. You can generate new power out of thin air at any time simply by inviting one other human to join you in some common endeavor. And once you start organizing... Uh, you can change the equation of power in politics. Well, you know, I mean, I, I think back to, to Occupy Wall Street. It's like, we've seen this movie before. There were those, the encampments, people were energized, people were angry. Um, and at the same time, you had the Tea Party. And what we watched um, in real time was one group, the Tea Party, march off this way and took their activism from the streets to the halls of Congress. Mm-hmm. But then you had Occupy Wall Street that just stayed encamped um, and protesting. Do you think now with this enthusiasm and activism that we're seeing on the left, do you think that now is the time when the progressive left will take that activism, that incredible activism and energy that's on the streets now and march its way into the halls of Congress uh, in 2018. I do think the progressives have learned that part of the lesson from the Tea Party, that it is, it is necessary but not sufficient to have street heat, 
you know, you also have to be able to convert some of that energy into the halls of power. And that's not just the United States Congress. That is state legislatures. Mm -hmm. That is city councils. It is county councils and county commissions, right? School boards. School boards, corporation commissions, regulatory boards, right? All of these structures of power that to most people, most of the time are opaque or invisible. Um, I think a lot of folks are waking up and saying, hey, I see them, number one. And number two, I can crack them. I can actually enter these, right, and change them. Um, So I do think that's important. That said, I think I wouldn't too quickly write um, the story of Occupy as a story of failure. Um, you know, I'm from the Northwest, uh, and I do, you know, spend a lot of time, you know, out in the woods in the rainforest in the Northwest. <laughs> and when you walk around there, you see a lot of fallen trees, right? And you might say, oh, what a bummer. That tree fell. It failed, right? But what these fallen trees are is what they call nurse logs. Out of those fallen trees, you start seeing other trees sprouting from the mulch and the nutrients of that fallen tree, Right. I think Occupy Wall Street was just that kind of nurse log, right? It didn't succeed, quote unquote, in the way that the Tea Party did. But the way that it occurred and the way that it gave us a language of the 1% and the 99% um, is the, the, the mulch out of which the Bernie Sanders campaign grew. It is the mulch out of which the $15 Now movement grew. It is the mulch out of which a whole slate of new kinds of worker organizing uh, endeavors are emerging, right? Um, and so, you know... Uh, when you say, did Occupy Wall Street fail? I say, it's too soon to say. Hmm. Um, but you write, there is a gap between making demands and making them happen. Hmm. And I'm just wondering, how do you counsel patience in an era when there is none? Hmm. That's a great there, question. There is no patience. I think one of the reasons why people lose their enthusiasm is that things don't happen fast enough for them. Yeah. Well, that, that is a real... Uh, concern. And there's no question that part of the way in which this president manages to manipulate the populace is that he gets people on Twitter time. He gets people on his on the metabolism of his thumbs. Right. Um, And and so people are habituated to responding to the cycles that he creates. Uh, And I think in the first place, uh, we we have to pull back a bit from that. But in the second place, um, you know, I think the, the second thing I'd say is to remember that any movement that's that's been worth a darn in American history has taken time to unfold. It's often been a multi-generational fight, right? Um, and that that's the nature of politics. The thing that can sustain you, though, and this is the third and most important thing I would say, um, is not just be patient, because I know that if you're a young person uh, who's frustrated by this and already used to a fast tempo metabolism kind of thing, be patient isn't exactly, uh, uh, you know, great counsel. I think the most important thing I would say is find a community that will sustain you with a sense of purpose. If you're part of a community where doing the work of stuffing envelopes, sending emails, canvassing, knocking on doors, writing op-eds, framing issues, doesn't feel like eating your vegetables, doesn't feel like doing your duty, doesn't feel like a burden that you got to slog through for the next endless number of years, but feels like, man, this is my tribe. This is my community. These are my people. This gives me a sense of place and a sense of purpose. You'll be glad to do this for decades on end, right? And I think, again, every movement that's ever been successful in American politics activated that spirit, that it wasn't just about do your duty or eat your vegetables. It was join the club, join the party, right? And I think we've got to revive a bit of that spirit, uh, again, across the left and the right, successful movements uh, that are able to to sustain in the face of an impatient tempo uh, society are able to sustain because they activate that deeper sense of purpose. So the, the, your book is A Citizen's Guide to Making Change Happen. So um, 
asking you to sort of <laughs> boil down your book yeah. into into a nifty soundbite. But what does that what does that citizen's guide look like? Well, that's a subtitle. You know, and I, yeah. I want to emphasize the title, which is you know you're more powerful than you think. Um, which to many people just sounds like, oh gosh, that, I don't even believe that. Like I, I, I that, that just that doesn't even ring true to me, right? Uh, and I wanted to, I, I, dis, I insisted on calling it this because I think we in America today, even you and me, uh, you know, who are highly engaged in national political things and quite sophisticated about stuff, much less folks who pay less attention, there is this seeping, creeping cynicism everywhere, right? That just says, man, the game is so rigged. The system is so broken. There's no point in me getting involved, right? And whether or not that is true, believing it absolutely makes it true. It is one of the most self-fulfilling <laughs> statements that you can possibly make, that the game is so rigged, there's no point in me being involved, right? Uh, and I often say in the context of voting, but I would apply it not just to voting, that there is no such thing as not voting, mm -hmm. right? Not voting is voting. To hand your power over, to throw it away and give it to somebody whose interests are going to be harmful to your own. The same is true. There is no such thing as not organizing. There's no such thing as not showing up. There's no such thing as not being informed, right? You're, you may think you're opting out or you may think, oh, this whole thing is sick and disgusting. I don't want to have any part in it. And so I'm going to keep clean hands. Again, all you're doing is handing your power and giving it away. And uh, this recognition that we all begin with an endowment of power. We may not feel that way, but time and time again, the tomato pickers of Immokalee, you might have looked at them and thought, these migrant farm workers who are in quasi-slavery conditions, they have no power. They reminded themselves and the rest of the country that when they change their frame of mind, they could change the frame of the possible, both in their own situation and in the economy more broadly, right? And so I think recognizing there, there, there are three laws of power that I, I, I want to say really quickly uh, that, that I build this book around, and I think it's really important to underscore them. Number one, as we all know, power concentrates, right? It compounds. Number two, power justifies itself. It tells stories, just so stories, propaganda, economic theories about why the rich should be rich and why, you know, why white supremacy is the natural order of things, right? Uh, and if we were just stuck with laws number one and number two, we would be in this terrible doom loop where fewer and fewer people would have more and more clout and the rest of us would be screwed. What saves us from that doom loop is law number three, which is that power is infinite. And again, I know the sounds to some folks like, oh, God, here's the Seattle dude coming at me with woo-woo <laughs> new age stuff. No, no, no. Power is infinite. Power is... Power in civic life is not like heat or energy in a physical system, right? The laws of thermodynamics tell us that if you get more energy, I must get less, right? Because there's a finite amount in a fixed system. But I'm not talking physics. I'm talking civics. And in civic life, if you learn how to organize people, if you learn how to give a speech, if you learn how to do a podcast, you don't diminish by one bit my ability to do any of those things. All you've done is you've added to the net amount of power in the system, right? And you can create brand new power out of thin air, as we've been talking about today, simply by organizing. And that is the way in which we are more powerful than we think, that if we get other folks on a common cause with a sense of common purpose, we generate power out of thin air. And that is the lesson of our times right now. Eric Liu, author, You're More Powerful Than You Think, A Citizen's Guide to Making Change Happen. He's also the founder of Citizen University and executive director of the Aspen Institute Citizenship and American Identity Program. Thanks so much for, for those marching orders, General. <laughs> Thanks, Jonathan. It's been awesome to be with you. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. 
And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Thank you.